117 of the Better Yet Podcast. I'm Tim Crisp, your host. Better Yet is a long-form interview podcast featuring musicians and music writers talking about influence, talking about writing, and talking about being around. If I mention this Beastie Boys book, they're so cool. And my favorite part of it all, my favorite part is that they're the best friends. I'm also, are you ready for this? I just finished Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. First time in my life. I've seen the third movie. Other than that, nothing. I am having so much fun. And after I finished the first one, I made Jamie promise me that Hagrid doesn't die in the end. Uh, that I couldn't handle. He's my favorite. My least favorite, Malfoy. Oh, I hate him so much. Nina Corcoran is on the show this week. Nina is the music editor of Dig Boston on top of a long list of bylines. Very stoked to share our interview with you all this week. And what a week we had last week here, huh? Patrick Kinlan of Self-Defense Family and Drug Church, along with the Axe to Grind podcast, dropping an interview for the books, an interview that only Pat could pull off. Uh, Heard from a lot of you out there saying how much you enjoyed it. I didn't mention it on the show last week, but Pat was scheduled to come over at the beginning of the summer when Self-Defense Family was touring on Have You Considered Punk Music, and he had to cancel last minute, and it came a couple weeks before I decided to take that long break I took over the summer. Uh, during that time, I listened to a lot of Self-Defense Family, listened to a lot of Axe to Grind. When I heard Cheer, I thought it was far and away the best thing Drug Church has ever done. So there was a lot of time and anticipation that went into that interview Uh, the one that ended up happening, and it was very cathartic being on the other side of a difficult stretch of time that I'd been having and to get the chance to have uh, Pat over here and to come away knowing that the talk that we ended up having was leagues above what it would have been if we talked the first go-around. Very proud of that interview. Nice to hear from so many of you. Patreon is a way... For you to help the show, help support it over at patreon.com slash Podcast. Pledge a monthly amount over there in exchange for some extra audio content. 15 Minutes with You was live this weekend, uh, technically speaking, at Chicago Podcast Festival. We have some extra Chloe content on there, postcards, coffee. Go check it out at patreon.com slash Podcast. All right. Nina Corcoran. 
This is my guest this week. Nina is a music editor over at Dig Boston, as well as a contributor to Pitchfork, NPR, Stereo Gum, Rolling Stone, Paste, and many, many more. The homie is hustling and has been since she was in college when she discovered that writing about music was even possible. She has since then become a preeminent voice in the music journalism community on a national level while maintaining a very thorough hold on what's happening in Boston over the last five years. Over the course of doing this show, prepping to talk to people like Rick McGuire, Jillian Medford, Carl Shane, Nina's work has been such a valuable source in putting together interviews. I was looking forward to talking to her about building that body of work and in talking to her about writing on the larger platforms and was certainly excited having her over now as her time at Dig Boston is winding down as she is now a Chicago resident. So lots to talk about. So let's get to it. Here's my interview with Nina Corcoran. Here's the thing. <laughs> we went to Target last night and it was like, it was kind of a stressful trip because we needed to get more Christmas stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I saw Sour Patch Kids. They were in the dollar section, picked them up, threw them in. I had six of those things last night. I got cankers now. Oh My yeah. They can get is, really sour. Well, what the heck is going on? <laughs> like, is this, is this something that's going to happen to me as I get older? Is that the less candy I eat, the next day like my body just rejects it i mean next day no probably several decades from now i guess sure that's that's a definite but sour patch kids are definitely like in a weird way i think you have to build up a tolerance my tolerance is gone because as disgusting as it is i feel like the perfect example is when i was in college i kept like i eat so many sour patch kids i have a giant tupperware container that i just fill with them Mm -hmm. (laughs) because the packages aren't enough for me clearly bad right bad for my heart but uh one time i had too many and it was it just kind of like burns that top layer of your tongue I got and you kind of gets like a weird crusty cover when it, your tr- tongue's trying to heal yourself and my roommate uh at the time i was just brushing my teeth and then brushing my tongue to help get it off to help it heal better and uh-huh. she was revolted that at watching what? like a layer of my tongue oh. come off yeah it's so gross but I can't stop eating and, them. And you're like, this is what this is what I'm doing to myself. You could be doing worse things. My heart addiction. <laughs> uh, so when so when you moved to Chicago, did mm-hmm. you, did you have like a list of the things that you needed to do as far as like I'm sure you went to Margie's really quick. Yeah, and right. I live close to Margie's, which is great. Well, that is nice. Because yeah. where are you now? You're you're on Western, but Western you're, in Iowa. Yeah, so, so it's like I'm like a few blocks south of the empty bottle. Uh huh. So you could walk, and you could you could commit to it, or mm-hmm. you could just take the bus up there if you feel like it, mm-hmm. spur of the moment type thing. Yeah, I love that place. I like like the old the old feel to it. It's yeah, good. I love the like shell bowls that they come in, like seashell bowls. Fan, it's beautiful, fantastic, and it's it's funny because now you you've moved here, but it was I guess fun to see your kind of. Uh, your slow evolution into being a Chicago resident and moving from Boston and mm-hmm. then having so much uh, excitement happening on the Boston side yeah. <laughs> and finding all these reasons to go back and watch your your Red Sox mm-hmm. do the thing. I know. I'm happy for you. Thank Congratulations. You. <laughs> I worked hard for my team. 
Yeah, it's funny. I feel like right when I moved, it would have been great to move at the end of the year, but every leases in Boston, I think it's like 79% of them are all September 1st start date. Oh, okay. Um, so there's really no way. I think it would have been unfair to my roommates to hold out through the end of the year like I wanted to, but it's been nice to go back. Yeah. Like I went back for the Red Sox. And then you went to LA and mm. you saw, did you oh, see them play? No, I wish. That was uh-huh. very weird timing. I planned a trip with my high school friends to go to LA like uh-huh. back in the summer we planned this yeah to be that weekend and uh then it wound up being Sox versus Dodgers for the World Series and go. it was very weird timing couldn't afford tickets and but. you you stomped them too which mm-hmm. is nice because like growing up a Cubs fan it was nice to uh kind of live vicariously through the Red Sox in the mid 2000s mm-hmm. before we got to do the thing a couple years ago but that was like a like it was it was so hard it was so hard being a cubs fan yeah especially at that time too because that's when bartman happened and then that red sox team with damon and manny ramirez it was like oh i love these guys yeah so personable so were you did you grow up like a a boston red sox fan or did you yeah yeah. Yeah, I did. My parents are both from Boston originally. Uh-huh. So I moved to town. I never even lived in Massachusetts until I went to college. Oh, but okay. they're so, my parents are like so Boston and New England in terms of the things they like. So yeah. while I was living in like Wisconsin or something, we were still watching all the Sox games on TV and like eating fluff and like, I don't know, lots of Massachusetts. Eating fluff? Things. Is that is that a Boston thing? Yeah, it's from Massachusetts. I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure. I just thought it was a, I don't know. Yeah, I think it started in uh, Somerville. They have a festival every year for fluff. They have Boston. a fluff festival? Get mm-hmm. out. It's called What the Fluff. Oh my <laughs> God. That's so cute and weird. Yeah, what, did, what did your folks do? My mom started her own typography business growing up. Whoa. And my dad worked at both a car garage, like fixing up people's cars, and also at GE. Uh-huh. Um, and then kind of got a weird string of opportunities at GE where someone fell ill and had to be gone for a couple months, so he filled in for them. Okay. And then they liked his work in that position that they offered him a job, and he just kind of slowly got promoted through oh, the wow. company. Yeah. That's that's wild. So yeah. what what did he end up doing then um, for my them? My dad worked in the GE Foundation, which is the part that, donates money so it's kind of the Uh ideal to be in in a large corporation because he got to help them decide where they should spend the money that they raise and a lot of it was spent on their healthcare equipment that they make so he would choose which countries uh that they donate this money to and help putting in a lot of times it was for countries in africa of what equipment to build in their hospitals and helping teach these people in low-income areas or that don't even have a hospital at all how to use them and help their own communities wow. it's a pretty ideal cool job yeah, yeah that's gotta be like so fulfilling totally and and your mom's got a typography business so what does she do she makes fonts or yeah so she doesn't do it anymore but she uh-huh. started out in that my parents also both early on worked at a department store but then she started working with i guess now everyone knows how to use computers but right would help with people printing things and using fonts and helping like type things up for people oh, and when wow. my parents lived in vermont originally she had her own typesetting business so it was like now we all know fonts but she like 
knew the limited amount that existed back then. That's amazing. And wanted to help like create things. And she partnered with a couple of local illustrators to help work on things together for people. What's her favorite font? Have you ever asked her? <laughs> I never have. What's your favorite so font? Oh, I don't know. Uh, Straight up, Times New Roman. 10 point. That's Times where New I'm Roman's at. great. It's a good look. It, I'm blanking on the one I like, but I have it set as a default on Google Docs. You know, I've had the Helvetica documentary queued for like seven years and one day i'm gonna watch it i haven't either i should watch it with my mom because it's you on should. netflix yeah. yeah and you're gonna see her in, in the holiday yeah so they're in vermont now mm -hmm. they good yeah good you have siblings uh yeah i have an older brother what's his what's his, his story his name is ian he's a engineer oh, so okay. total opposite of what i do yeah and he works, I feel so silly for not knowing more information, but he basically works in a company outside of Boston helping with their developmental plans for larger companies and buildings that can be built, basically making sure the architect, architect's idea of what it'll look like will actually mm. work in terms of the layout and how yeah. different things need to be in terms of sizing and Definitely far from where you're at. Yes. Was there music? <laughs> Numbers versus words. Right, right. Much. Was there music in the house when you were growing up? Oh, yeah. My parents love music. Yeah. I'm super lucky. I, oh, for like, real? Yeah. They both, like, love music. They aren't very good at playing music or never got into that or had the chance to, but definitely, like, it was mind-blowing to me to go to a friend's house and realize they don't like their parents don't put on music or don't like listen to the radio in the car right. or buy CDs or records and stuff that my parents did. Go to concerts and Yeah, go to yeah. concerts. My mom like my mom's a giant Who fan and oh, she brought real? my brother and I to see them when I was 7 years old. So I got to see like Janet Whistle and all these like Yeah. I've been to a lot of great shows because my parents brought us along and it never never felt like being dragged. My brother and I were always happy to that's awesome yeah so was it was it mostly like classic rock were they keeping up with what was going on currently a bit of both they definitely love classic rock my dad's more of a prog person he loves yes oh really mm -hmm. and then yes my... i couldn't i can't bridge the gap with yes oh yes is so good is it i <laughs> king crimson has made sense to me mm -hmm. and i still i still have like a, a healthy distance from it but like yeah. the frippin eno stuff i love mm -hmm. he he's cool the it's just it's a little weird that's all that's it can all. be a lot to get into it's uh, the winter's coming i always go into deep <laughs> dive mode yeah. yeah so he's a prog guy yeah and then my mom was big into the who definitely are her favorite band and then yeah. um probably the beatles after that but lots of classic rock though my mom and dad are very open-minded when it comes to current music and my mom would listen to all songs considered a lot and she would buy a lot of the music on there so like growing up i learned about like the shins and sufjan stevens yeah. and all those people through my mom who already had their cds right um which is cool and it's also nice to grow up with people who hear stuff and are willing to take that chance on like i heard a song or two and this is being promoted so i'll go out and buy it for like eight bucks or whatever it is yeah. instead of being like well, that was pleasant in the moment, but I know what I like, so I'm going to stick with it. Right. They've it, always been, yeah, like my parents to this day always ask me to make playlists for them and CDs for the car. Yeah. Which is nice. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, that that instinct too, I mean, it's it's feels like it's starting to die out more and more of just the, uh, 
you know, hearing a song and buying the thing and mm-hmm. seeing if you like it, as opposed to all of the options that you have to uh, to avoid spending twelve bucks on something. Yeah. Um. So when when you were growing up, then and you're you're taking all of this stuff in. Do you do you remember kind of like discovering music? on your own path or do you remember maybe taking it to like a uh, a level that was even further beyond what you were already <laughs> born into yeah um i started up well i got like normal kind of girls magazines that had music sections so whether that was like american girl or 17 or marie mm-hmm. claire things like that so i would always make a point of like I don't know, early on, I was really intent on knowing everything about music, which is impossible. Yeah. But I would like study every section in magazines and go try to listen to them online or through like LimeWire early on and then try to like figure out what I liked and I would use my allowance or whatever money I'd made to buy CDs usually. Then I got into like, I got really into alternative press for a while and was really big into uh, like pop punk and emo. So you, this was, when, how old are you? This was probably like in middle school. So uh-huh. like I got into looking through all that stuff in like third grade, fourth grade, and then middle school of like fifth grade through eighth grade uh-huh. was I was really like, like I would then started collecting my own music and having tons of CDs and so making going, CDs for people. I would loan CDs from my locker to my friends that uh-huh. I like trying to recommend. Of, you're like, the I person. think you'd really you're like this. You're the one like, hey, you got to know about this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just I got to know everything so that I can tell everybody else about it. You're born into that, right? Because <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I've got that too. Of Just like, I want to know. And I don't, I just want to know. I yeah. want to have it all collected. So you're and you're coming in the the AP era of what you got is it Taking Back Sunday? Yeah, like Taking Back Sunday, Follow Boy, uh-huh. like brand new, all that, all that stuff, that. right? And the <laughs> like no, it's through and through. Definitely. I had I had the damn Cobra Starship song <laughs> stuck in my head for so long that I finally just watched the video mm-hmm. and. It left. I was I was happy about that, but like, man, that was a time. Yeah, the and it felt so. It's weird belts. to look back too because yeah. some of it felt small. Like I felt like I only so many people at school knew these bands, but at the same time, they're playing. Like at that point, I lived in Connecticut, and mm-hmm. Connecticut now is a bit better about it. But at the time, there's like not really many music venues in Connecticut, especially for people under twenty one. There was the space, which is very small, and I can't think of a venue here to compare it to, but mm-hmm. maybe closer to the empty bottle in size. Oh, okay. But that was far out. It was just like you had to drive always at least 45 minutes or an hour to get somewhere, and you had to convince your parent to drive you, and not a lot was all ages. But looking back, realizing those bands were playing like the arenas in the state, because no, you would either play New York or Boston, you would right. stop in Connecticut. Mm-hmm. But having it still feel small is so funny. It's kind of like looking back, realizing music that felt really intimate. Now looking back, seems so overly produced. Oh, yeah. But at the time, feels so different than what you're hearing on the radio and what's like readily available through you on commercials on TV or like someone's picking as a soundtrack in a TV show that's on or something. Yeah. Yeah. Taking Back Sunday would like sell out the Metro, but they still felt like like a small band. Mm -hmm. And 
same with like you know i think newfound glory i think was a was a big one for me like at that time of like oh this is a band that i really like that it's they're not on the radio Mm -hmm. but then when you look back on it it's like this was a huge band i saw them at a best buy in store and they (laughs) like it's so well produced and they had videos and all of that stuff so so when did you um i guess when you're like in high school and stuff was it still were you still kind of confined to uh not having much local you would have to go to boston or new york to see shows yeah Yeah, so we definitely live closer to new york so i would go into new york for shows where were you in connecticut uh i lived in a tiny town called easton okay um we didn't have a high school it was very small oh (laughs) Um, so we joined Uh with the town next to us for high school what was that what was that town uh redding connecticut okay so our school that's like a little bit a little bit like north of like where because there's parts of Connecticut like Stanford, which is basically yeah. So in it's New definitely York. like the southwestern part. It's like mm-hmm. in the Fairfield County, just okay. outside. You can take the train into you New York. Newtown, right? What's up? You buy Newtown? Uh, yeah, buy Newtown. Were yeah, you around for Newtown's that? borders. Uh, it's like Easton. There's Monroe. There's Bethel, Reading, yeah. Newtown. Yeah. You were around? Were you around for that? Oh, I was two days from going home. Oh, Jesus yeah. One of my Christ. my best friend's sister taught at the middle school, and it was very oh. scary. God, fuck. Um, okay. But yeah, it's unfortunate because most yeah, people yeah, didn't yeah. know where our area was, but now that's a uh, well right. known. Yeah, totally. Because that's where, that's that's exactly, and that's it's not a big town, but it's, no. you see that and you're like, yeah. oh, okay. Well, now I know what's, uh, what's. But it's a good representation uh-huh. of what it, yeah, it's like a very small area where people, multiple of my best friends' places, they never lock their doors. It's like everyone, it's so small, you know everyone yeah, in your town. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Connecticut, if people weren't stopping through there, then I could go see bands in New York only if I had a male friend go with me, which mm. was funny because I didn't have male friends for so long growing uh-huh. up. Um, but yeah, we were fortunate though. We had a pretty cool local music scene, um, which is nice, especially looking back. There are several people who were like just outright talented from the get go. And uh-huh. especially now as like a 26 year old looking back being like some of like we were like 14 15 and people are making genuinely great music it's so, pretty cool so a, a local scene then does develop a mm-hmm. little bit just not not when you were yeah not when you're in the ap days but <laughs> no uh-huh. yeah a little after but i think of people who felt like the kids who did like music really really liked it and it almost felt like we are so isolated from things that you just like went for it right who was yeah. who was doing it then? Is there anyone I know? So there, yeah. So you interviewed Peter Katz. Pair. Oh. He and I went to school together. Oh, that to high school? Yeah, in middle school. He's from Easton. Oh my god! <laughs> what a soul. Has he always been like that? Peter's always been super nice. Yeah. yeah. His old, he has an older brother who's also nice. Uh huh. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, I I have so much. <laughs> all right, all right. So so Peter was doing the thing. Yeah, and so Peter, he, so he's like, a lifer. Peter was in the really incredible math rock band called fugue that mm-hmm. to this day i still listen to their music it's great mm-hmm. and that looking back he was the youngest member in it at the time and it was just wild to watch and be like these kids are playing incredibly complex things that are so good and no one really knows about them and then you have like avlov in the town next door and like yeah. um fucking best yeah best so there's like band in the world it was nice there's a very small scene but it was really good and the people in it definitely like 
if you loved music, you really loved it, even if there, even if it didn't feel like there were a lot of people who did right. around. So for you, I guess you're you're working from this this brand that's like wanting to know everything and wanting to share everything. So the I guess when does it become uh, for you something that you want to write about or share in a in a way that's not just with your friends? Yeah, honestly, it never occurred to me that you could do that. I like read criticism. I read reviews. I started getting music magazines and paste and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. But I just didn't, I don't know. It felt, it honestly felt very inaccessible of like, how do you even, I don't even want to say break in. Like where are the, in general, where are the doors to enter this profession? Right. Like I didn't think music journalism was something you could study. I didn't think it was something you could do if you were young, like younger than 30 so when I did definitely you make didn't that feel like there are a lot of women. A, oh, for sure. Yeah, and it it just felt very. It felt like a world you could admire, but no one got to enter. Uh-huh. And it wasn't until I was in college, I worked at our school's uh, radio station on their music website. I kind of helmed it and helped us. Like when oh, bands okay. came in to perform on the radio, we would run short interviews with them online as well. It was only then that I started doing that, and. Uh, they sent us to South by Southwest once wow. a year. I think they've stopped doing that, but they did back then. Uh-huh. And I remember I went there. I was a big fan of Cloud Nothings and saw one of their sets. Yeah. And just, what, what what era Cloud Nothings? This, this would have been in 2014, I think oh, okay. it was. So had a, what, Attack on Memory, was mm-hmm. the one here nowhere else? That I, come out yet? I think it, it hadn't come out, but they were playing behind it fucking great record yeah oh, I love that so record. they played songs off that and i went up to dylan afterwards the front man and just said hey like i'd love to interview if you have time i know you guys are busy at this festival but like i'd love to if you have the chance and he was like sure here's this email address just write to us yeah so i did we set up a time i interviewed him and i was a big fan so i knew all the things that i had read and i knew what i hadn't read about and was curious about right so it was great to get to do that. And I remember when I was yeah, you done your and I typed it up, I was just like, well, shit, like this is something I would want to read, but no one is going to know what keywords to type in to find our random uh-huh. college radio station website. Right. And so I was like, what do I do? I want to make it so people who want this can find it. And so I just was like, I'm going to see if I can contact like these publications I read religiously if they would take it. So I just went to like, pitchfork and rolling stone and pace and i went to everyone's about section i found the place to pitch and it was just said like hi i interviewed this band we talked about these subjects i think it'd be a great fit for your website because xyz uh-huh. would you be interested in running this this is all and i was just your... like still in college right and i didn't mention i was in college i didn't mention i hadn't written because i had interviewed bands i i love to write mm-hmm. i read music criticism but definitely didn't have any type of formal background i went to school studying nonfiction, yeah. wanting to write books right and then pace responded i was like yeah we'd love to do this do you want to run it as a q a or long form and i was like googling long form oh my God. <laughs> and it was just like i'll do whatever you want to do and uh-huh and it wound up running and i got paid for it and it, it was just i felt like i I didn't lie, but it felt like I lied because I was just sitting in my school's library. You, yeah, you didn't, you didn't tell them everything. Yeah, but it doesn't I matter. I thought no one would take me seriously if they right. thought I was 
in college. That's amazing. Yeah. And I guess it's funny, too, to think about, you know, growing up in, in an era where, uh, like, you saw blog rock happening. Mm-hmm. You saw that people oh, yeah. were doing it yourself, but it's still, Loved like, MP3, but I still right. go to some constantly oh, to yeah. learn about smaller if I, stuff. If I get a Mediafire link that works, it's like, <laughs> oh, I feel young Especially again. the people who do an amazing job of archiving stuff. Right. All props to them, because that seems so hard to do. Yeah. But it, 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 that's just such a such a wild story. So you're you're in school. You went to Emerson. Mm-hmm. You wanted to write nonfiction books. Yep. So who who was your uh, who were you reading? What was the the idea that you had there? In terms who, of going to school for for fiction yeah non-fiction for nonfiction stuff? writing, or um, was it just like you get in and then you read someone that and you're like, oh cool, that's that's what I would like to do. Yeah, you know, I, I grew up ever since I was really little, wanting to write. And so I thought I would want to do fiction uh-huh. and kind of started reading some nonfiction before. Like, I love David Sedaris. I still do, who always makes me yeah, laugh out loud. so funny. And then in college, I took a fiction course and then nonfiction because they are pretty good about having you take a widespread of types of writing courses. And then realized I actually like doing that more because I don't usually like talking about myself. And I thought, Nonfiction, mm-hmm. memoir stuff. Why would I want to talk about myself to other people and set it up sure. almost as if it's worth knowing? And then I found it was a lot easier to just make fun of myself through that type of writing mm-hmm. and set it up that way. And it felt more natural. So I kind of gravitated towards that. And that's what I did my uh, final project in as a collection of short memoirs about growing up. Yeah. yeah. Do you still do you still write in that way? It's funny. I did a little bit after, or maybe it's not funny. It's kind of sad. I did a little bit after graduating, but then it's so, I mean, it's hard enough to get in the music journalism world to get that stuff published. It feels even harder to do that with fiction and nonfiction and poetry to have that published, but nevertheless get paid for it. So I started having to work really hard to make enough money doing the music journalism stuff that I didn't really do what I wanted to do my entire life. Yeah, but now you're you've you found this new thing that you get to do, mm-hmm. which you, is you great because I didn't even know I could do, do that right. or get paid. The fact uh-huh. that I someone said how you know give us your invoice, and again I was like googling invoice. I have no <laughs> idea how to do this. <laughs> it was it was cool. It definitely. I mean, it feels constantly like a privilege that to get to write about that and to get to help share things. Yeah. Of, connecting people who would love something but doesn't know it exists and someone who's working really hard making it and i feel like you know too you're doing this you're doing the radio thing and and you're getting to to write there and interview people there and you're you're also in a place like boston which is uh it's it works on so many different levels it's a mm-hmm. big city you described it as a college town the other day which i thought was was funny and then i sat with it a little bit and i was like well cambridge Somerville, there's like Emerson is in the fucking middle of Boston. Yeah, the more you walk around, the more you're like, there's just it feels more like small gaps between college campuses uh-huh. or campuses maybe in quotation marks. There, it's and especially once you graduate, it's there's kind of a weird period where you start to feel old and you're like 100 knowing, yeah, definitely not old. Mm-hmm. But because there's such a concentrated student population, and that also is apparent over the summer when most of those people leave, and all of a sudden Boston feels very spacious. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. It's very young. It's everyone's so enthusiastic about what they want to do there. Obviously, there's a great local music scene. I love right. Boston's local music scene, and, and it's got to be exciting too. I think to to experience a place that is 
just always you have berkeley kids like funneling in and Mm -hmm. then and then you have like the established things that have been happening there for for a while now like exploding in sound bands Mm -hmm. that are boston based and then there's the bigger level of people who are coming in and touring yeah so how does the path go after you're done with school like where do you find yourself uh writing like most frequently Mm -hmm. or is it you're like working a job and writing on the side. Yeah. So I did a summer internship at Dig Boston, our uh-huh. city's alt weekly magazine. And I did that because I wanted to work for the Phoenix, Boston Phoenix, which is a very well known alt weekly paper. And that collapsed the year that I applied. Oh, so wow. it ended and it was really sad. And Dig was the competing alt weekly. So I was like, well, this is the only paper left that's not rigid and like hard journalism it's very loose and has a wide voice so i applied to that and loved it and after graduating i freelanced for them for a while but they didn't have a lot of money so i was just doing i was just writing for them for free but because i was getting these opportunities of getting to like possibly write about this band or review this show and it was like these are things I'm going to do anyway maybe not in the formal setup of a show review or an album review but these are things that I spend hours messaging my friends about the only difference is kind of tightening up what you would tell your friend into a more formulated piece right because you're, you're telling your friends of Boston yeah <laughs> I mean it's like I that's all my friends do we just sit around and talk about albums and compare things and like yeah. make our own lists and watch live videos uh-huh we just are nerdy, so it was nice to be like, I can be a nerd, but for everyone to get to learn about this thing. And I like that you're, cause it's funny that you say that, because, you know, you're writing for Consequences Sound Dates pretty far back, and mm-hmm. I, I've always looked at that website as having a, a looser uh, and, like, more fun feel, because mm-hmm. there's lots of lists, and there's lots of, oh, like, totally. multiple people coming in on things and just, like, kind of riffing on, on what they like. Yeah. That's kind of, like, I, it's, it's funny, because I think... I think that that's an underappreciated publication, and I've mm-hmm. never been able to pinpoint why. Mm-hmm. You think it's is, is it too loose? Is it too? No, I think consequence is good. Consequence definitely, I think, very obviously focuses on rock, and that's when you look at the clicks and get to look behind the scenes of what gets clicked on the most. Like they know their demographic; it's a ton of people going there for rock music and alt rock stuff, and the lists do it so well. Even if it's people hate clicking, it's like people mm-hmm. love to read those. Yeah. And they're great at it. Like, they really are. And that's that's a site that early on I started writing for. I asked to um, cover Pickathon Festival out in Portland, Oregon for them. Finally, I, like, just kept following up until I got them to respond. I went out and covered it and sent it in and then got a response from the editor, from Michael Rothman, who just said, we really love this and we'd like for you to write for us more. Yeah. And I was just, like, over the moon because that was going into the fall of 2014 the year I graduated and I told myself kind of arbitrarily like I have six months to try and make this work otherwise I just need to get a part-time job or a full-time job I don't care about and I can write after that and kind of my whole life I knew I wanted to write books and I knew that's not unless you're super famous like I'm not gonna be making tons of money so I knew growing up that I would just work a normal day job and so that felt like a great 
it just felt like a great thing being extended of like, oh my God, maybe this really will work because someone else is being like, we like this, do it more. Yeah. Instead of me being like, if this isn't going to work, I'm going to realize this is so silly. Why am I doing this? I didn't study this. I don't have any background in this. It's such a funny, like, I guess, concentration of time because I'm sure when you're 22, 23, six months feels like a long time mm-hmm. and, you know, you get a few years older and it's like six months to figure out how to do something is not that much time (laughs) so you probably had to like go real hard and the the idea that you're hitting them up like over and over again like i want to do this i want to do this i want to do this and they finally say yes and i'm sure that that's something you still deal with today right of yeah you're freelancing you're kind of hustling a lot Mm -hmm. how does it how does it go? How does it uh, settle when maybe you don't get a response after three me- emails and you're like, all right, well, now what? I asked someone I went to college with who's an amazing person and also an amazing writer is Miles Bow. He mainly mm-hmm. writes about electronic music. Um, he was a year older than me and he wound up working at Stereo Gum for a long time and then Fact Magazine. Oh, okay. And That's my, yeah, I recognize that name now because I see it in the red stereo gum font under yeah. the article. Uh-huh. So Miles is wonderful and one of, really was an early person in championing uh, exploding in sound bands to help them get bigger. And he loved covering this local music festival, asked me to do photos for it when he was coming back to cover it. Anyway, I, no, what, when I started going into this, go I, ahead, I'll, I'll ask after. I asked him if he had any advice because I, like looking back, it's hilarious. I was starting my emails formally, like if I was emailing you, I'd be like, hello, Mr. Crisp and stuff where it's like, <laughs> don't need to be that formal at all, yeah. but just ask for general advice. Like I would like to do this. I don't know anything really about the journalism world, more so the creative writing world. And he, one of the things he told me was just, you have to be willing to follow up a lot. And I just said, I worry that I will feel bad that I'm annoying them or that they're going to be like look at this idiot who won't leave us alone he Uh was like yeah but eventually you just get a response and if like and it made me think about it and realize there's kind of two ways that can go they either get fed up until you know like bug off or they get fed up and are like fine do it and you have that chance to prove to them that it's good enough and if you are they're like oh yeah. Well, okay, then we want to do this again some more, write some more. Or you wasted their time, fine, but at least they took a chance that in the long run, people get so many emails. It's not really, it's very rarely them ignoring you. It's just them not seeing it or being overwhelmed with their own workload. Yeah, that's really, really good advice. Yeah, hearing that made me, and like putting it into practice made me feel so much more relieved following up because it's never it's like so I think rarely intentional up is the hardest thing to do yeah and that's been my i think one of the things that i've struggled with doing this thing is one email to a publicist no response all right that's mm-hmm. cool like i'm 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 small potatoes that's fine <laughs> i i didn't even, even want to do it anyway it happens right, which is weird totally. their whole job is trying so hard to get people to respond and work with their clients and that yeah. happens too we'll all have to follow up of like at Dig, working there as an editor of being like, I'm offering you this space in print. There's so little print that still exists dedicated for music. And sometimes uh-huh. it's hard to get people to follow up. So when when you go into Dig and you're doing it, you're doing it kind of just out of out of wanting to do it. Mm-hmm. And is there, um, is there a lot of coverage that's happening for like the 
underground things that are happening in Boston totally. at that time. It, that's already like well established. Yeah, and Dig, when I came on as an intern, the music or music editor, also I think in general, the arts editor was Katie Drell, who's an amazing like. Katie is so wonderful. I wish uh-huh. I could just do a whole episode about her, but. <laughs> She, I feel like, is a really influential mentor for me, in especially within music journalism. But she was really loose about letting people cover stuff, but would always assign local music things to be covered, like Krill, like write about this Krill yeah. album and stuff that back then I was unfamiliar with them. But she, um, yeah, and then she you, wound up you leaving. Get familiar and, pretty quick with that band. Too. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> she. Uh, she wound up leaving after that and went to Rolling Stone and has since worked at like various other uh-huh. publications. But um, yeah, Katie's amazing. And she, I think, was really helpful in having me realize like I loved a lot of local music and going to house shows. But I think I didn't, I think there was for a very long time a big divide in my mind of liking that stuff, but not thinking it was like allowed to be covered by a bigger critical voice that that Mm. stuff was meant to stay in that bubble and not meant to break through yeah which is so silly because you want it to you love it you would love for more people to know about it but it just felt like that's not how it happens it feels like you're so close to seeing people lug these amps out of a car into the basement of someone's house you see that they're clearly not a band that's gonna play a big stage at a venue where it's ticketed and someone's putting x's on your hand yeah it's this it's the same you know same principle of uh of the ap thing mm-hmm. and, and looking and, and these people exist on a different plane but it's you know it's funny these these people who uh you know who are working at trader joe's and, <laughs> and are playing these shows and and you know over the course of doing this and uh you know my own experience of of talking to uh jillian medford or or carl from cal marx mm-hmm. and trying to get into the information uh, as far back as I can, and you have uh, amassed this like library of, you know, if you want to know anything about uh, these people from this time period, uh, you know, through the, through this time period before they start getting larger attention, mm-hmm. it's all it's all you <laughs> on dig and That's yeah, funny. and and I I guess that like I. I really took to that and the the idea of like oh you're just amassing like the 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 spot where people people come and, and it's like when you find you find something and you get excited about it mm-hmm. and and here's five different articles about it and even if one of them's like a show review or another one's like an interview it's like it's all there and you can dive in yeah when you're taking uh bands you know like that down the line into their NPR uh, write-ups or, you know, the bigger publication reviews. What do you think, what do you think goes into your approach with something like that? I think the big one for you uh, is is writing about Hair Shirt of Purpose by Pyle mm-hmm. for Pitchfork. Yeah. This is the Boston man. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like you have to maybe communicate more information or try to consolidate more do you know what I, do you know what i'm yeah. trying to say it's a, have trying to help bands with that crossover thing is interesting because there's like i very genuinely not exaggerating really love the bands in boston scene and 
it is such a privilege having gotten to write about them as an editor and as an intern and just freelancing for the paper over the years. But helping have bands cross that thing is, I think, becomes more reasonable when knowing a larger publication's voice, whether that's NPR or that's Pitchfork or like Stereo Gum or something. But it also helps to think about who you want that to go to of thinking of the publication's audience and how that will match up and how genuinely I can speak to my own enthusiasm when pitching it. So for doing that Pile review, Pile's a band that, as beloved as they are in Boston, definitely is like well-respected in DIY scenes across the U.S. at this right. point. So that's something that like they've been covered in spin. They've been covered in like stereo gum for years. They've been covered in consequence of sound. Like pitching that wasn't hard maybe, but it was trying to balance your own love of a band with the trying to be um, non-biased in a grade for it. Yeah, because there's almost like... <laughs> I'm like, we all know I'd give this right. a 10. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, if, you, if this was uh, maybe something that had a little bit more uh, <laughs> uh, weight to it, it would be an ethical issue. Yeah. But, you know, that pile in particular it's so interesting because it's like everything that you read uh about pile starts with a like contextual paragraph about how beloved they are mm-hmm. and i guess i i find that article or the, i'm sorry that review in particular interesting because you're writing about uh this band for um for pitchfork and knowing that this is a this is a band that requires a lot of context. This is also a record that is not a departure, but it's dissimilar. Totally. And um, it's also a band that's not in vogue. Yeah. And like, no matter what happens or what's written about them, Pyle is going to keep doing what they're doing because they don't care. And it's not about that. And that context for them too is important because that's true. Like you can go back six years ago and there's still albums that are just as good as that one mm-hmm. and it's amazing they have such a strong catalog and so having that type of context almost not to compensate for lost time but to catch people up when it's like i know this is getting reviewed here but it's not like this is the breakthrough album that gets to come through it's because there's finally enough background about them or discussion where it, we can do that now like this review can come up nice yeah, because it it's not always not like is this good enough this right to be covered it's like there's only there's limited space that people can run things every day mm-hmm. and pitchfork runs tons of reviews but they're covering it's not like a site dedicated to a few genres pitchfork covers everything yeah you can go there to learn about weird experimental jazz and like a really cool minimalist electronic record and which you've also written about album. like for pitchfork yeah <laughs> so it's it's thinking about it in that context too of like you may think this is great, but why does it beat out some other good or bad album for this spot on their website? I think that's a that's a really good way to think of it, and I think that you know, for for some someone who really cares about guitar music, and I think that there's a there's a growing uh, consensus that guitar music is in a very strange spot right now. Mm-hmm. It's you look at you look at the the people who who uh, have the loudest voices and you and you you think like why don't you give this enough credit mm-hmm. but thinking about it in terms of they have a lot of other things to do yours is not the most important thing yeah it's 
maybe good maybe better perspective but is it do you do you find it like to be a bit of a struggle um keeping that in mind keeping the fact that you know uh certainly not a knock on pusha or the (laughs) earl sweatshirt record that just came out but that that's going to generate a lot more hype than the of course than the sixth pile record (laughs) yeah yeah i think sometimes it's interesting it's I think as a freelance writer, a lot of times it feels like you have to generate your own hype to mm-hmm. have something covered. And that can extend as far as like someone who's definitely gets enough work and is like admired as a writer and been doing it for a while as like, uh, I'm trying to think of someone. Like, so Ian Cohen. Mm-hmm. Ian Cohen's a very familiar name within music writers, even for people who don't go to music sites regularly to read probably to listen to things but not read and he's someone who will share links often and is often talking about music he likes even if he doesn't get to cover it and i think he helps try to drum up stuff so even if someone's not going to read what he's writing people are becoming aware and inadvertently that means editors or people he follows or other writers will hear about it and that makes it a little bit more likely he'll get to cover something even though arguably someone who's more well known like him shouldn't have to have to put up as big of a fight to get the thing yeah. they want covered covered. And so I think that makes sense when trying as a smaller writer, maybe someone who's just starting out and trying to get a thing you love covered is probably helping to make sure it doesn't feel like it's out of nowhere unless it's some grade A perfect flawless thing someone can hear on the first listen and be like, yes, we're doing it. Let's cover this. There has to be something else there because we live in a place not where there's more bands, but I think it's easier to find all those bands. So it feels maybe like... Tough to just get you to pay attention Mm -hmm. to one when there's there's so much... And there's there's like the you know the ability that uh could you imagine being yourself in high school like today like the the one who shares music the way that you were doing back then i know because no one would really i mean maybe they would i still have people even who like are huge into music and go out of their way to learn about stuff ask me to make them mixes or ask for recommendations that happens all the time still but But it's so it's so much it's very different now yeah you just tell them um, we're, we're dying to read Nina. <laughs> um so it, but it's got to be it's got to be nice then to have this ability to uh work for a place like dig boston where you have so many people who you are able to generate that with and then be able totally. to take them onto the onto the larger uh platforms of coverage mm-hmm. i guess what's the struggle then um with writing about things locally is it the same as it is on the on the national so many bands so much going on i think sometimes it's hard because a lot of bands well so i feel like there's a divide in the boston scene where there's lots of people who are making amazing work but have no idea how to publicize themselves who don't even have a website who Mm -hmm. don't put like any sort of tag on their band camp so unless you see them live or something, you're not going to see that. Then there's other people who can't afford to do stuff live or their schedules don't make that possible for them because they work late. And then there's other people who are like all about promoting themselves and get all of these spots on lineups or take up press spots and other websites like Austin Pudding or Vanya Land or Sound mm-hmm. of Boston or all other music websites. And sometimes it feels difficult to 
find an artist you really like and be like, hey, I know we all know about this band who's great at promoting themselves, but this person rules and they're too shy to do that, but like listen to their work or at least give them credit for how much they're killing it right now. Or there's bands like that who are great, who sometimes it feels weird. I think it feels, sometimes I feel guilty for not covering bands that I'm supposedly supposed to, but I don't see the point when they're doing just fine press-wise, when there's people who are right. really great who don't have that coverage. So there's like a, like a Sydney Gish, wrote oh, about her last year. Yeah. Like, so great, That's met up with her. That's such a good record. Yeah, there's a lot of people who are great, but like, She's just goofing around, casually making amazing music, I'm but like, not why did trying to. You put that to... thing out on 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 December thirty first. <laughs> don't you know what? Don't you know about album of the year list? Do you know how important those things are. Yeah, yeah. it's funny. It's like because I mean, there's some people who aren't concerned with that, but are so like Sydney's music is so original and fun and vibrant. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't even remember your question now. I'm just thinking about the weird thing of bands who get enough press, not that they don't deserve it, and bands who or artists who uh, it's so strange to watch. Don't know to how to do that. Happen. I didn't know how to enter this career. They certainly don't know how to promote themselves. Right, right. I but I think that it's it's a good thing to to uh, help help the ones that that can't do it themselves or or don't know how to do it themselves, and then you you put everybody yeah. up if if the people are doing it themselves then mm-hmm. fine. or like aren't concerned it. with that there's uh-huh. some people who know how but are like we're not looking for that we just want to make music and have fun so you're also you know you're you're re- you're reporting from a place that has so much musical history mm-hmm. and things like that you know i uh have been following along uh ryan walsh uh I love that guy. I yeah. love everything that he does. And, and they just had a panel for the 50th anniversary of Astral Weeks. Mm-hmm. And that's awesome. And, you know, with that in mind, I think one of the things that um, I'm really happy that you pointed out to me, even though it doesn't happen in Boston, was your coverage of Newport mm-hmm. uh, last year on day three. Yeah. Um, that was such a good article. That was such a good report. And, and to f- fill people in, you know, ca- talking about the lack of people of color present on stage in the audience at this place that has been very well established as being part of the civil rights movement and, and folk. And, um, you know, for you writing that, when does the thought process start to generate of Wow, there are only white people here. Is it before? Is it Oh, it's definitely during because, number one, we're in New England. It's primarily white people anyway. Number two, it's a folk festival, and like modern times, it's going to be primarily white people. Mm -hmm. Number three, it's a small one in Newport, which is very expensive, and a festival that sells out before they release their lineup anyway. It's primarily going to be upper-class white citizens that live in the New England area, Newport Folk Festival every year. I've been to it a lot whether covering it or just attending myself to go see stuff. Um, that's always the case. There's only so much you can do to diversify the people who attend your festival, but you can do a whole lot to diversify who you're picking to play because you pick who plays. Yeah. And that year was weird because myself and a few other people who work for other uh, local outlets were all talking about how uncomfortable we felt that year because it felt like somehow worse than normal 
it's not that we're expecting it to become like this multicultural, diverse, equally like represented place. That'd be amazing but that you have to build towards that. Uh, but it felt weirdly tone deaf. Like there was, if I remember correctly, there's a Chuck Berry tribute that year and no one on stage was not white. Yeah. And like, no one acknowledged that. That can happen. You, if, I'm sure they asked people to play who couldn't that year because of their touring schedules. That happens mm-hmm. anyway for normal shows, nevertheless a festival. I'm sure they had things planned that didn't work out, but for no one to be like, you know, one of the biggest factors this man contributed to music is acting as a voice of representation for people within the rock world. Right. And like kind of taking back that space that was originally kind of shifted towards white dominated groups. And it just felt weird. I just felt really uncomfortable. And I was talking with someone else who works for the Boston NPR branch who was like, I really want to write about this. And I know I'm not going to get to because of relationships you have to maintain with festivals and publicity groups. Yeah, you can't, you can't tip that. No. And I just kind of thought like, I don't know if I'm going to do this. I do day by day reviews instead of a full festival review. Um, because we are a local publication, because we do want to support them in a way more than we would anyone else doing daily reviews versus one big review. And I try to do it based on themes, but that last day felt like the most glaring. And there were so many I just instances. couldn't, I just, it, yeah. I don't know. It wasn't meant to be a takedown, but I just wanted to be like, why aren't we making this happen? Because Newport, you're so much better than this. And you know, you are, it's not like you've never been good at this, but like, why did it get to this point? And I feel like we have a responsibility to ask someone to improve themselves. Yeah. Especially if you love someone, that means you believe they have the capacity to fix themselves and become better. Mm. And that was strange. And it definitely, the which I don't think I should really publicize, but the way I was responded to by readers was great. Lots of people said this is why they've ne- I had multiple friends say it's why they've never attended the festival mm-hmm. because they felt like they would feel out of place. It's why I had few other people on Twitter who I don't know respond saying that they see this all the time and it makes them really uncomfortable and that they had the same thoughts this year and there was a really big response to it and then a very big response from the people who run it or help handle it who I don't think should be named right now but it was really disheartening to see how it was handled internally yeah and I thought somewhat petty and kind of it genuinely bummed me out because it was like no one wants to be pointed out that you're messing up. You did something wrong in general about anything. But that one was a weird one where it felt good. It felt good to be able to speak on that. And especially from the mindset, not of pointing fingers and scolding, but saying like, this is what's happening. How about we figure out a way to make it go a bit more in this direction? Yeah. I thought that your direction with it was very, very well sequenced of this isn't a takedown this isn't uh you know something that happens naturally mm-hmm. it's not like it's not everybody... like every other music festival is a beacon of diversity right. and it's and it's not like you know every single person that is playing this thing is the first choice mm-hmm. but you have to go all in if you're going to point it out mm-hmm. and after I think you qualify things very well, you do. And it's, it's tough too when I think you have, you have an establishment that has 
kind of always felt like they're on the right side of that conversation and Mm -hmm. to have somebody not like also no less a young person be like no you are not on the right side of this and you have to fix it and they're like "Uh uh-uh no we're there we're good yeah we've always been good are you kidding me it felt very it feels very familiar in our maybe the openness people have with discussing these things now of being like well, yeah, but look at what I did before. Look at what I did these other years. And it's like, I know you did that. That was great. I'm talking about this year. Yeah. Cool. Like, we're great talking about right in, now. In, in 1958. But <laughs> like, come on. Well, it's it's nice that you got, it's nice that you got responses from, uh, you know, people who uh, are able to look at things a little bit more objectively like, yeah. from within. Did you look at the 2018 lineup? Was it any better? <laughs> oh, I did. And I yeah. had many people reach out to me about uh-huh. it. Uh-huh. Uh, which was kind of funny. I had, yeah, it was very different. It was much more balanced. It was almost entirely 50-50. I wrote a whole piece about it. I oh. wound up not getting access to cover the festival, so read that as you may. But wow. I wrote a glowing piece in print anyway, promoting it. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, and it was a great lineup. Dude, pound, that fucking rules. <laughs> That's amazing. The, that, that, like, caused enough for, for people to say, like, yeah, okay. Like, you suck on the internet, but also, yo, she's got a point. We should probably figure this shit out, huh? And I, you know, after we ran a piece pointing out, if you break it down by numbers, the representation, both with women and artists of color, and I think, I'm pretty sure I mentioned that in the piece, Newport's always been really wonderful at having a wide range of ages as well. I think a lot of music festivals don't represent elder artists and they're great at that. I think folk lends itself naturally to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and wrote that piece praising them and passed it along and was like, I know there's no room for me to attend this year as a single individual, but uh, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I thought you might want to know we're running this in print anyway. And then got a response saying, your piece is factually incorrect. We had the majority of these artists booked last year already. Uh-huh. Have a great day. And I was like, okay, like, I'll change my I'm, tweet. I'm out of here anyway. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny, I think. like which, which is important. You know, I think that speaks to the year before of booking artists who maybe couldn't perform. Uh-huh. But they're clearly, I mean, if you compare it to all past year, like it's way more balanced than it ever has been. And yeah. that's good. And I'm glad that's happening. And it, I hope that continues. That's that's awesome you know i think because this is uh the the type of work that you do it can it can maybe be tough to get uh that direct type of feedback Mm -hmm. i think a lot of times you you do something and you know whether it's uh whether it's a, a show review or something like what you did with pat flynn from fiddlehead where that had to have just been such an emotionally uh just cathartic experience of having what do you talk to that guy for three hours <laughs> we talked for a very long time yeah uh-huh. after uh after he got out of school because he works as a teacher yeah which i also thought how can this person talk for this long after I- teaching all day with kids um i'm sure that there was a lot that you were I mean, even like going back to like the Cloud Nothing thing, you get to do this thing where it's like, this is a band that I love, and I get to talk to these people about things that I want to talk about. I get to learn about them, and then I get to put it together, and I know that it's good, and here it is, and now I just hope people read it. Mm-hmm. 
it's tough to get, I think, a little bit, there is a little bit of like, you don't quite get the the gratification that you necessarily do doing other things creatively mm-hmm. where people come to see it and they're like great job applause <laughs> it's like you put the article out and you're like all right have at it i guess <laughs> hope you find it yeah the finding is always weird especially when it's not a national outlet when it's a local outlet it's weird to think. I didn't even know all weekly papers were a thing until I lived in Boston. I didn't know that there are free publications that cover cool things, yeah. just like there to take every week. Yeah, um, that always is always kind of worrisome. I'm fortunate enough that I have like the tiniest of Twitter followings that I can share things, and hopefully, people who don't live in our city mm-hmm. will click on it to read about it. But you hope that you hope that it finds its way. You hope people learn about something. It's very rare, but extremely gratifying when that happens. I had someone once come up to me at a show, and so they asked if I was Nina, and so they read about it in the paper, and it sounded cool. So they came, and I think I died. (laughs) Someone. (laughs) It's very sweet. I was at a show once, and someone turned around and said, are you Tim? And I was like, get the fuck out. I can't even... (laughs) But you know, it's such a faceless. It's a. I mean, mm-hmm. sure, we both like have. I'm pretty sure your Twitter photos. Is it yourself or no? No, no it's uh, it's a, uh, it's Essa Tikkanen from the uh, New York Rangers 1994 Stanley Cup team. Was it you before then? It was. Okay, because yeah. yeah, I, like, I know I saw your Chloe, face up there right. before. Um, but you know, it it it's funny too because um, you you pointed you pointed me in, in that direction too that that Fiddlehead article and I started reading it and I was like, oh. I read this. I read this uh, when I listened to this record uh, for the second time in a row, and I was like, "Oh, I need, th- I need more. I need, I need to know more about what went into into this thing." And found that and devoured it. And then, you know, it's not like I forgot about what I learned, but I forgot that that's where it was. And then I was back again. I was like, "Oh, this is how this works. Sometimes <laughs> you do get something out of it, and then forget about it." Yeah, it's cool you came across it organically, though, looking for more information. Yeah. That's what I want. That's what I want with all of these bands, like Ian Sweet or Cal Marx or Bad History Month or, like, Oompa, all these artists, Sidney Gish, who, like, I hope someone finds out about them and just Googles them, and ideally this comes up of, like, here's the information you're looking for. Learn about how cool they are. It's Like, fall in love with this band. It's easy to find them. It's easy to find them on Spotify, and you just you just hope that there's never going to be a uh, there's never going to be a shortage of people who also want to know, uh, you know. <laughs> Chloe, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about that one. Oh, fantastic! It's it's good. I you do really good work. You do such good work contextualizing, and um, and now you're you're winding down at Dig. Mm-hmm. What are we doing now? We got Chicago. We got ice cream shops. Is it <laughs> is it freelance opportunities and keep hustling? Yeah, I think uh, so. I finish my role at Dig Boston, or at least formally as an editor there at the end of this year, and then. Ideally, start freelancing for the Chicago Reader, which is the alt weekly paper here. I was um, just featured in there, you know. Yeah, oh, I saw. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I'll have to come to you for advice. Oh yeah, the reader. The, the the key is to give the people what they want. 
<laughs> so the hustle you'll you're gonna you're gonna go and you're gonna keep doing the thing mm-hmm. and it's, yeah, it's, hopefully it works it'll work it'll so always nervous. work i i don't know how you do it but i'm really glad that you do thanks Tom. thank you for coming thank you it's talking. so fun good i'm glad <laughs> All right. Hey, great stuff. Nina keeps a tremendous perspective on all aspects of the work she does locally, big scale. There's an understanding of what you're trying to convey and who it's for. It's nice to talk to someone who has had such a concentration in one place and has built a body of work out of it and has been able to transfer that knowledge and perspective elsewhere. And for all the hustling that comes with the work she does, the constant churning out of material and finding what's next to see a perspective that is still very grateful for the chance to do it. You take that in. This has a big impact, a very, very lovely interview to have and to share. Big thanks to Nina for coming by. You can follow her on Twitter at Nina Corcoran. I've included links to some of the articles we discussed, the Newport piece, the pile review, and the fiddlehead write-up. Those are in the episode notes for this podcast. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Stitcher. We're on Bandcamp, better yet, podcast.bandcamp.com. Facebook is facebook.com slash better yet podcast. Email better yet podcast at gmail.com. And the website is better yet pod.com. Patreon, if you'd like to support the show, it's patreon.com slash better yet podcast. And thank you so much. Thanks again to Nina. Thank you, Chloe and Lily. Passing it to George now. Come back next week. Thanks, folks.
so sweetly and goodbye I can feel 